Hey y'all, this is Sam. And this is Steven. And welcome to Crimeology. This is episode eight, and we are super excited you're here with us today. Um, I'm excited for this episode for many different reasons, but the first reason is that this week we have a special guest. Special guest. And it is Tabitha Suarez. Hey guys. <laughs> Tabitha is my little sister. Um, she's the one who... <laughs> We joke. We, so we were talking to my boss today, and my boss came up to me and she said, "I was going through Netflix, and there was a true c- crime category." And she said, "It made you think. It made me think of you." And I said, "I was like, I think me and Taba have a true crime conversation at least once a week." <laughs> so that just shows where Taba and my head are at. <laughs> um. But obviously, I'm super excited to have my sister on an episode um, so that we can get into our conversations like we would in the car together. And you guys can see kind of a a different side of our minds, <laughs> a kind of scary side of our minds. Very, but I'm super excited. Very scary. Um, this week is another episode that Steven doesn't really know a whole lot of information on. No clue. So that's another reason why I'm excited about this one. I'm just excited that to teach Steven something, I guess is what you could say. Um, so when he doesn't know a case, that gets me a little excited. Woohoo. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you guys uh, for joining us again. Uh, make sure to follow our social medias at CrimeologyPod and make sure to email us any crime suggestions you have at CrimeologyPod at gmail.com. And also thank you for everyone that has like tuned in in the last what two weeks uh we've had a crazy amount of listens the last on our last episode which or episode before sorry you know we record these out of order sometimes so it's hard to keep track of it right but um for all of you guys that listen to elizabeth smart that was that has been our best performing one so far which is great for us so but yeah so excited to learn about this one from from you from you guys so we're just gonna jump right into it so today we're going to talk about the Menendez brothers. Uh, when Tabitha told me she wanted to come on the podcast, I told her that she needed to pick a case um, and we would cover it. And she first came to me and she wanted to do Ted Bundy. <laughs> Tabitha has freaking a... Zach Efron. <laughs> Tabitha has just a slight obsession with Ted Bundy, and it's turned into a joke amongst our friends and family about how much she talks about Ted Bundy. Um, but I, I was, it kind of not scares me, but it's just, there's a lot of information about Ted Bundy and there's a lot of information about big cases like that. So I didn't want to cover a big case like that. So I told her to pick a different one. And so she picked the Menendez brothers as her second one. Um, so I wanted Tabba to kind of talk about why she picked this case. Right. So one thing that really stood out to me about this case, like, and it kind of shocked me, the idea of the hybristophilia, which is the sexual interest and attraction to those who commit crimes. That's a very large word. Oh, yeah. Big word. Five, I, that's a $10 word, actually. Definitely had to Google how to say it. But this is something that has been seen with other crime doers like Ted Bundy and Chris Watts. So these two guys, if you Google them, they're pretty attractive, but they also committed awful and brutal crimes. 
But since they're so attractive, they're kind of looked at by the public eye as innocent, or some would even argue that what they did wasn't that bad or violent just because they're physically attractive. Um, so I just, I've always thought that it's kind of a sick and ridiculous notion, but it's one that is genuinely thought about by many people. Um, so this certain case is super interesting in itself, but when you look at it from the fan base and you see all the high, high bristophilia that's involved, um, it just kind of makes it more interesting. So if we can't do Ted Bundy, we're going to do one that she likes just as much. <laughs> so um, we're going to get into the story. So today we're going to talk about Eric, who was 18 when this crime was committed, and Lyle, who was 21. So on August 20th, 1989, the two brothers shot and killed their mother and father, Jose and Kitty Menendez. So the bodies were nearly unidentifiable when police ended up showing up to the house. Um, it was figured up that 15 rounds came from two 12-gauge shotguns at the scene. Um, Jose at this time was the head of the RCA records and he even had a hand in signing some bands and artists we know now like Duran Duran. Um, and the family lived in an exclusive block of Beverly Hills. The house they actually lived in at some point was also lived in by Michael Jackson and Elton John. That's gotta be one heck of a house. So this is like their big league. So... When their bodies is sorry, when their bodies are found, police thought the shootings had come from a mob. That's how bloody this crime scene was. Um, so they're not only looking at mobs, they're looking at business rivals that Jose would have had, and they're also specifically looking at a porn executive that never really got along with Jose. So because of the nature of the crime they're never they didn't really look at the brothers at first kitty had about 10 wounds and jose had six wounds and so just the nature of the crime to begin with um the two boys were never really looked at as suspects until later on so the night of the murders the brothers tell police that they had gone out to see a movie and when they get back uh, that's when they discover their parents bodies Officers who responded to the call, they even said that Eric was sobbing on the front lawn. So, I mean, that's, again, why they weren't looked at as suspects. But also, I mean, the crime scene was bloody. So, um, the boys just kind of get off. Now, this is where the story kind of, it gets a little interesting. So, the months following the deaths, the brothers spend 700000 to a million dollars of their father's 14 million fortune. Yeah. Wow. So Lyle bought, he bought a Rolex, a Porsche, just new clothing, and he bought a restaurant in Princeton where he was living at the time. Um, he had dreams of starting a chain restaurant business kind of thing. So with his money, he wanted to try to get that started. Eric bought a Jeep Wrangler a $50,000 personal tennis coach, and he had dreams of becoming a, fresh, a professional tennis coach, um, player, sorry, um, and then $40,000 into an investment of a rock concert, but that rock concert never happened, um, and then he just gambled thousands of dollars. 
They even go on exotic vacations. So they're buying all of this stuff and using all of this money, thinking that they were going to have money coming in. But technicalities came up. Um, I tried to look at what those technicalities were, and I couldn't find anything in detail. Um, But those technicalities stopped them from collecting what they were going to get is $5 million of the parents' life insurance policy. So that's just wild. Um, But on a completely different note, a year before the murders, Eric gets caught in a string of burglaries, and he is having to meet with a therapist ordered by the court. He ends up being paired with Dr. Jerome Ozeal. After the murders, Ozeal reaches out to Eric just to see how he's doing, how he's handling everything, and this is where stuff gets fun. So, so to stop you right there. Yeah. So this guy, his dad, is just rich, just money Beyond coming belief. out, right? But yet he's robbing places. No, the son. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. The son is right. Rob- like what? That's yeah. That's the yeah. Okay, that's that's my first red flag of diving into this already. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um. Stop. Okay, so Eric, he starts talking to Ozeal about the murders, and he ends up confessing to Ozeal about the murders. And Ozeal, he even gets both boys confessing to the murders on tape. Now, at this time, Ozeal has a little girlfriend off to the side. Miss Smith, turns out she overheard one of the sessions one of the brothers was having, and she goes straight to police and tells them what up. Now, when me and Taba talk about this, the questions that come up was, like, first off, we, you know, we get, what is it? Help me out. Patient, teacher, confidentiality. What, but what is it? Patient, doctor, confidentiality. Anyways. Uh, Anyways. Doctor, patient. Thank you. (laughs) Doctor, patient, confidentiality. Perfect. So, we were talking about, like, well, first off, like, if they admitted to the murders, like, that should be your first thing of going to the police and saying, hi, like, I know who did this. Yeah, that's definitely a mandatory reporting to the police. And then, like, where are these, where are these happening that Miss Smith is just overhearing you confess to this? So, like, there's a lot of questions with this, too. Um... But she goes to police, and then on March 8th, 1990, Lyle was arrested. But at this time, Eric was in Israel playing tennis, but he ended up flying home and turning himself in. So, trial begins in 1993. During this first trial, there was a lot of news and TV in the courtroom. So, everything was filmed, which means now, like Taba mentioned, they're in the public eye. And they're divided. Some thinking that, you know, they didn't commit the crime. Others thinking they did. You've got love letters coming in. And so all of this is happening. So just like a Ted Bundy situation. um, So you've got all of that happening on top of this trial. So the brothers weren't able to. They were having a hard time claiming their innocence. So this is when they come out and they tell the courtroom 
that their father abused them physically and sexually. They said that Jose had molested them both since they were children. Lyle went on stand and gave graphic testimony about what he went through. Um, and the brother's lawyers obviously tried to use this claim as self-defense. Lyle said his abuse ended at the age of eight, but he didn't know about Eric's abuse until just a few days before the murder. Um, so this is obviously where the story kind of gets into a su touchy subject where you run into, and this is kind of where me and Taba differ from here on. Um, I obviously understand that going through, I mean, I don't understand personally, um, but I understand that going through something like this, like sexual abuse, can take a toll on somebody. And I understand that it can be embarrassing to come forward and talk about, especially if you're a boy. Um, and so that can be looked at, you could be looked at as weak or um, whatever. And so I understand that it could have taken them a long time to build up the courage to come forward um, with the sexual assault. And I'm not saying that I believe that they didn't, weren't sexually abused. Just for me, it's just one of those things that if, if I killed my parents because they were abusing me, it would be the first thing I would say. And you get caught, like it would be the first thing I said. So now, like you're halfway through your trial and then you mention something. So that's the only thing with me. Um, is just why is the timing wrong? You know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody else has anything to say because it's such a touchy subject. But I just go back to, I mean, it's just kind of a stereotype of whenever you think about sexual abuse or physical abuse. I mean, any kind of abuse, you just automatically assume that it's a woman. Um, that is kind of the victim in the situation. And so I can see the boy's outlook and kind of how they, this could be the reason why they decided to commit this murder, but they also don't want to just kind of come out and say it. One, because it's, it can be kind of a shameful thing to admit that that happened to them being boys, but then to also have to confess that it was their dad just kind of adds another level on top of that. So I think it's valid that they wouldn't have mentioned this information until they absolutely had to. So do you believe this is self-defense? Yes. Okay. Wow, that was a very, <laughs> yes, that's a very ASMR type of response right there. Well, because it's, you know, there's, there's both sides of it. And I don't want to be seen as the person that's feeding into this hybristophilia. Because while they are, I mean, yeah. Google Google a picture of Eric Menendez. We'll, we'll put it on the uh, on the put post. Put it on the social media, and then they can just and then the audience can decide for themselves. Oh yeah, but I guess for me, this is and this is where me and Taba, because we're on different sides of it. Like I believe they should have been. I mean, they do get punished, and so I believe in that punishment, and I believe that that was correct. Um, I believe that there are many other ways that this could have been handled, but Tabitha feels differently. So this is where we differ in this one. And I can kind of see, you know, going from not knowing anything about this case, I can kind of see both of your right. both y'all sides on it of, yes, it's 
it should have probably gotten brought up sooner, maybe, and then just, you know, middle of the case, oh, hey, you know, this happened. Yeah. But I can also see that, yeah, it'd be kind of not embarrassing, but it, I don't right. know what the right word yeah. would be. But I can kind of see that side of things of where they wouldn't necessarily want to bring it up. Yeah. So. So something that also doesn't really help their case is that they bought the guns on August 18th, which was just two days before the murder. So this isn't something like they just had the guns, you know, and they drew them out when something was happening. Like this was a premeditated thing. And so that detail in and of itself is what is where I believe that it wasn't self-defense. So, I mean, well, okay, we'll just move on. (laughs) So going back to the tapes we talked about, it took a long time for the court to decide if the tapes could even be used because of doctor patient confidentiality. So that's why it took the case so long to go to trial in the first place. But in the end, they decided that two of the three could be used in court and one of those just happened to include Lyle's confession to the murder. So, the brothers talked about why they killed their father, but the court wanted to know why they also killed their mother if their mother wasn't also abusing them. So, the two said that the mother was an alcoholic, she's a drug addict, and that she knew about the abuse the whole time. The boys later say in an interview that when they went into this fit of rage, that's why they killed their mother. Eric mentions that when he found out that his mother knew about the abuse, he now sees as his mom and his dad as one person. So you get that adrenaline going, and so he just saw them as one person. So that's what he says about his mom. Yeah, and and to me that also kind of makes sense too of like, I mean – if you're going to kill your parent, you're you're not going to kill just one. I mean, that's the right. the very weird side of things in my mind. But like, if you're gonna do one, you're gonna do the other. Right. There is something that's not mentioned in this information, but just because I did my own research, I saw that there was one point where um, I'm not sure which brother it was, but one of them had just been sexually assaulted by their dad and then kitty their mom walks in the room and kind of you know cleans him up gives him a bath wipes him down you know checks on him make sure he's okay because she knew the entire time this was going on and since this is new information for them i mean you can just imagine where lyle is coming from um after he believed that the abuse was over as a young kid for Eric to then find out it's not. And Eric is, you know, in high school and is a growing boy and is still getting abused in this way. And that his mom is still knowingly letting this happen and doing absolutely nothing about it. So another question that the court asks is why didn't the boys just run away or why didn't they tell anybody about the abuse? And they end up telling the court that their father would have hunted them down and killed them himself if they ever told anybody or spoke up about it. So the first trial lasted four and a half months, and it ended in two hung juries, one for each brother. And then it was announced that there would be a retrial. The second trial was in 1955. This time, however, no TV was allowed in the courtroom. Um, so this kind of, you know, 
the love letters are still coming, um, but just no TV is allowed in here. So um, they're now convicted of first-degree murder, and they're sentenced to life in prison without parole, and they're both sent to separate prisons. In an interview with the boys after they were convicted, they still both said that they believe that their father would have killed them if they told anybody about the abuse, and they still stand by that. Um, The boys also said, and this was something that I just, they said this, and I was like, whoa, like, what? They said that the night of the killings, they stayed at the house waiting for somebody to come by, a.k.a. police. They said because it was the middle of Beverly Hills on a Sunday, they figured someone would hear the gunshots and call police and that they would come rushing over. So when they're sitting at the house for some time and no police show up, this is when they both get together and they decide we're going to go to the movie theater, we're going to buy this ticket, and then we're going to come back and act like we just found our parents. So this is also some information, and this is something I, I mean, I'm going to tag it on our Facebook so everybody can go watch that same interview I watched. Um, but this is like word for word coming out of their mouths. And so for me, that's another big claim that, I mean, you're waiting for police to show up. And when they don't show up now, you're like, okay, well, let's lie. Well, and the crazy thing to me is that that's 12 shotgun. Yeah. That's, and I mean, obviously, I mean, any gunshot is loud, but shot, I mean, to me, it seems like shotgun just feels like it rings and rings. And when you've got 15 going on. So like, yeah. Um, so it, just hearing that come from their mouth, it was, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's done deal, lock them up. And the fact that they bought the guns beforehand, I mean, there's just a lot to it that I don't think self-defense. I can see where you're coming from, but... I don't think that their idea that someone is going to show up is super far off. Um, I mean, if you think about it, I don't know what happens in a murder because I've never committed a murder and I've never been there when a murder has been committed. Good to know. Yeah. So everything I know comes from these stories or comes from the movies. So I think, especially in this time, they probably got their idea of what happens during a murder and after a murder from movies that they've seen and in the movies i mean everything works out perfectly and exactly like that i mean you hear gunshots and then the cops show up so i don't think that it's a far off idea that they think you know we're gonna do this and then the cops will be called and not i mean it's not a smart idea but it's not the dumbest idea to try to go back on your trail and find your tracks you know so Whenever they were expecting the cops, you know, after after they committed the murders, were they expecting, you know, the cops to show up? Were they going to, like, have a shootout with them? Or were they just going to be like, I, oh, no, they, what I happened? Mean, I don't think the reporter asked them that right. question. But that I will say, in the same interview, they, um, they're, they're asked multiple times if you would go back. Could you do things the same way? And Eric mentions multiple times. That if he could go back in time, he wouldn't go about things like the way he did. Um, so, 
and he even mentions, I mean, he even basically speaks out to other kids who are being abused. And he basically says, don't follow in our footsteps. What we did was not what you should do. Yeah, that's that's a pretty smart statement right, right there. So the fact that he's also making those other statements, I don't think that it would have turned into a bloody mess when police showed up. Um, and, I, I mean, I think if the police would have showed up when they were still there, then I would have believed the self-defense way of this crime because you'd be in the house like you wouldn't have lied about the whole thing but i think you i mean just you lie about it and then you go on this shopping spree afterwards i think those are things that kind of push me off but again i'm i I can hopefully i will never be in a sexually abusive situation where i don't even have to relate to them um so you know they could be coping in their own ways and everybody does cope in their own ways so maybe just going to life as normal was their way of coping um but so one thing that i think that everyone should do before they kind of make their decision of if you think it's self-defense or not is to watch those interviews um the one that sam mentioned and there is a ton more out there during their trial um, just so you can really hear the emotions behind their voice. That's something I did. I know we all know of TikTok, and I am on Menendez Brothers' side of TikTok. Um, now, that's not super helpful because that's definitely people romanticizing them and just kind of showing the good clips of them. Um, but when you go, I mean, you can even YouTube these interviews and just hear the emotions behind their voices, and you can listen to their stories um it's very graphic detail but it really just gives you an insight of what they really went through and how they are really feeling about all of that and i i on our facebook page we post all of our source material so i'll post some interviews on there so you guys can go there and um look at all that um but that's with the menendez brothers and so now we're just going to take some time and talk about our sponsor for this episode All right, now we're going to do our Florida Man Minute. Um, This is our segment, my favorite segment, where we Google a random date along with the words Florida Man, and I just sit back and giggle at (laughs) what Stephen has come up with. So this week uh, comes from the date of September 10th, 2018, which turns out to be Tabitha's birthday. You know, figured we tied that in. Um, So Sam... What is your favorite thing? You know, I was I was asking you the question, of course. Right. What is your favorite thing to bake? Cookies. Okay. Hmm. Tabba, <laughs> what's your favorite thing to bake? Tabba can't b- bake at all. Okay, well. But Tabba loves eating Sam's cookies. <laughs> well, looks like y'all have been reading my article here. <laughs> um, so our headline is Naked Man, Naked Florida Man Causes Fire While Baking Cookies on the George Foreman Grill. Yes, the infamous George Foreman Grill. Uh, this comes to us from Niceville, Florida, which is um, pretty close to actually where we uh, tend to vacation at over there by Destin. Um, so a Florida man set fire to his home last month after he tried to bake cookies using a George Foreman Grill. Uh, when firefighters in Niceville arrived or along the Florida Panhandle arrived at the home on August 27th, 53-year-old James Cunningham answered the door naked and said, I'm sorry, and shut the door. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, police officers were called in to assist the fire department. Officers said Cunningham was not aware of the danger he was in and could have suffered uh, smoke inhalation. He had to be removed for his own safety, the newspaper reported. Um, Cunningham told police that he had drunk, yes, this is how it says, drunk two liters of vodka and, and been smoking marijuana that day. Uh, the fire fire department found that Cunningham had left a George Foreman grill unattended as he tried to make cookies. For some reason, he also put towels on top of the grill, the fire department said. Mm. So, yeah. So he's not trying to bake cookies on the George Foreman. Apparently not. Um, okay. But, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, one of those, it's a little sh- shorter one like we've been doing lately. But, you know, it's just... Man, Florida just does not disappoint for it, us. It's it's just little details of the fact that he's naked. Like, and it's also he answered the door and said, "I'm sorry." It's just uh, that's what makes this segment is little details about what have we covered? Alligators, alligators, and onesies uh-huh. and pancakes. It's just uh, those details that make me laugh so hard. You have this crazy story, but then you add. He's naked, and you're just like, ah, top tier. He's naked, and he answered the door by saying, I'm sorry. Right. This is so much fun. So Uh, hopefully, I'll I'll try and find a little bit longer one for next week. We'll be a little bit more prepared. I was a little little behind this week. (laughs) But that is episode eight. So thank you guys so much for sticking to the end and watching with us. Um. Like Steven said at the beginning, we had so much, so many people watch, um, or I always say watch, and my mom tells me all the time, she says, you always say watch, listen, sorry. We had so many people listen to our episode last week, and so we greatly appreciate it, and we love seeing those numbers. Steven has texted me every single day this week, updating me on the numbers. Um, so it's super fun, and we're just excited to see where this goes. And it's exci- it, it's exciting to see our excitement have an outcome, if that makes sense. So you guys are making two two kids super happy. Um, and then also want to thank Taba for coming in and th- you guys getting a little bit of a sneak peek into what our car rides look like um, on the daily. Um, and just- And maybe this is even a preview of a of an episode that we semi kind of hinted at at the beginning. We might do a, yeah. a little deep dive into Ted Bundy. Maybe. <laughs> um, and we'll have to bring, of course, Tabba back on. Um, but yeah. So thank you guys for joining. And like always, this is Sam. And I'm Steven. And this is Crimology.